The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. And the views of their employers do not necessarily reflect the views of the participants. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Political protest through Photoshop. We'll introduce you to the man behind the Twitter sensation, Trump's Ties. The music of politics. Why the 1960s is not the decade of the protest song you think it is. Yes, I do. Yes, it is. The collision of technology and politics from the Nixon-Kennedy debates to net neutrality. Our Amber Healy updates us on the millions of signatures protesting the Trump administration's plan for a two-speed internet. Plus, how social media has killed the 21st century Bob Dylan. I'm telling you, it's blowing in the wind. <laughs> Dot com. Okay. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. One of my all-time favorite Twitter accounts these days, Trump's Ties. I love what this guy does with Photoshop. The one thing that freaks me out, and we'll get into it when we talk to him, is this idea of how long my tie should be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of an issue. We, we, we've made some adjustments to our wardrobe uh, since number 45 entered 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But this is an interesting form of, of political protest that is very silent in nature, yet can say so very much about the news of the day. He's very clever because it's not just parody for the sake of parody. If you really think about what he's doing with a lot of these these photoshopped images, he's making a statement. It's like a political cartoon. So he's taking these ties that Donald Trump clearly doesn't know how to tie, and he's making that much longer and wrapped around a subject, and that subject sort of telegraphs to you, I suppose, his position on the politics of the day. And he joins us now. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Here, here's the problem we've got, is because of your request for anonymity, of course, we can't call you by your real name, so I've decided we're going to, for the duration of this interview call you Eric Trump. Oh my God, you guessed it. <laughs> How did you know? Oh, it, it was written, written all over your ties. I'm sorry, Dad. <laughs> you, you seem to be genuinely concerned for your anonymity. Are you worried about your physical safety? <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm not, and it's a valid question. Um, when this all started uh, back in February, not that long ago, I, um, well, I, it's a Twitter account. And, you know, you guys know that unless you actively make your Twitter handle your name, it, it is inherently anonymous. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a Twitter account that was representing something else. It wasn't, you know, Billy Joel's Twitter account. Uh, it was its own thing. And so my name was never a part of it at the outset. Um, before it really took off, did I, did I think it might aggravate some people who are easily aggravated? Sure. Yeah. Um, but as, it, as it's picked up steam, one of the interesting things uh, I found out 
is that most people uh, like it, regardless of their political background, which is interesting, at times disappointing. <laughs> um, but I, I've become less worried about that. But at the same time, it's it's really become its own thing without a persona attached to it. So, you know, I, I did do an interview um, early on after it sort of picked up some steam with uh, an online news aggregator. <laughs> I won't name names. And they were extremely pushy about using my name. They very much wanted to. And I don't know, that made me all the more interested in, in not. I, I think once, once I attach my identity to it, it, it changes it a little bit. And you, there's no going back. This is parody. This is satire. This is absolutely free comment. There's, if you put your name behind it, it really loses some of the mystique and, and some of the mystery. I think it does, and I think, you know, I'm hesitant to say too much about that because I feel like it's a little highfalutin <laughs> to, to sort of praise the anonymity, but I do think there's something to that. It's its own project. It's its own thing. I'm perfectly fine not having my name associated with it, um, especially because, as Eric Trump, people know my name plenty. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Having said all that... Um, I can imagine, too, that you don't want, you know, your company brought into any of this. You don't want it to reflect poorly on anybody in your family that bears the same last name. But tell me, um, is Photoshop your day job? Without giving too much away about your actual life, is this what you do for a living? It is not. It is not. Um, uh, I have a, a pretty typical job in, in corporate America. Uh, my background is actually all in in performing arts and writing uh I was a theater major uh, way back in the day, and I'm a musician, I'm a singer-songwriter, and a writer. I have some stuff online uh, in print that's appeared. Uh, can you say in print online? I don't know if that's... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, but the Photoshopping itself has actually always been something I did in conjunction with those other things. Uh, you know, my band had a gig, I'd make a poster. Um, Back when I had a theater company, uh, we we have marketing materials, and, and I would make those. And so I, I picked up the skills around Photoshop that way. It's never been part of my actual job at all, which is probably just as well. Yeah, a lot of people will pick up Photoshop simply because you start with, you know, the free version and then move up to the the, the cool stuff. It's not that hard to learn if you if you're motivated. No, it's not, and it's it's super fun. Uh, I and mean, there are so many great things, applications for it, great things you can do with it. Um, not just political satire, for sure. Now, my, my wife has a couple of questions. First of all, this is you've only been online with Twitter since February 2017, which makes sense because uh, the inauguration was only in January. Yeah. Uh, um, this is, uh, you're a meme generator. Let's face it, you're a specific type of meme generator, right? Yeah, I think so. Can you monetize this? <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought it was the business guy's job to ask about the money. Well, no, I, I, I'm very interested because anybody who comes up with a really clever meme, I mean, you know that you're putting this out into the world, that the Internet is going to adopt it as, as its own. Yeah. And, and you're, you know, you, people will just run with it. But, um, you know, can anybody monetize these memes? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think that... You know, I am starting with with other folks' work, and it, it, it I believe falls within fair use to to use it for the parody as I do. I'm certainly not looking to make a penny off of this specific project. Book deal, <laughs> book deal. Um, I did have, you know, there was one particular week where it really went viral, when things really took off of the account, where it went from I don't know, maybe 500 followers to about 20,000. Uh, in about a five-day span. Can you tell us how to do that? I, I will. I will. I will. I will try. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it happened exactly. Um, 
But I did have many friends texting me saying book deal in all caps, just like that, Alan. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think if, if anything comes of it, it's that, you know, the Daily Show reaches out and says, do you want to do Photoshop for us? <laughs> you know? No, no. Do they really? I mean, no, if they did. I mean, I think oh, if they did. Okay. Please, right. please don't get too excited. <laughs> um, and if, if you're listening Daily Show, uh, send me a tweet. Yeah, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. yes. Uh, but I think that's really the only way it becomes anything like that, right? It, it's its own thing. It's it's you know, it's a little art project. I, I'm thrilled that people enjoy it. I do too. So, what constitutes the perfect photo to choose in the first place? Such a good question. It's it's a few different things, and uh, as the account has picked up um, some steam. It's been more important to me, first and foremost, to do things that are more topical. If you look back at the early, early pictures uh, on the account, back when I was getting started, I really grabbed stuff from, from anywhere, from the campaign, from pre-campaign, uh, just to kind of get going and, and try a few things out. Now, there'll be an occasional one that is kind of standalone, but I try um, to, to use pictures that, that have to do with what's happening over the course of that day or two. And there certainly is plenty of material. <laughs> even, even if the person in the news with Trump or alongside Trump, even if it's not a picture of them from that same very day or two, right. I'll at least look for pictures of that person. So, for example, Don Jr. has been a bit in the news uh, over the last week or so. you got to shut your brother up. I, I mean, you're right. <laughs> right. Um, it was hard to do the one of myself a while back, it's true, uh, as Eric <laughs> Trump. But anyway, so, so Don Jr., I found some older pictures of him. They weren't from this past week. I think it's probably hard to find a picture of him from this past week. He's probably hiding. But it, it was still topical in that way. So that's number one, is, is it relevant right now? And then the pictures themselves, there really are things that make a good picture for me to use. I don't know how technical you want me to get, but... I have a couple of rules, one of which is to draw as little as possible. And what I mean by that is I don't fabricate tie out of nothing. It's, it's really important for the photorealism, I think, to use <laughs> existing tie, if I may. And whether that's from that very picture, which is ideal, or from another picture that, that has the same tie, that, that's always an option as well. <laughs> So, so a picture that has plenty of, of, of Mr. Trump's tie in it already is always great. Uh, it's always helpful. Don't you mean dad's tie? I mean dad's tie. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this podcast will really be, we'll be able to pinpoint exactly where the rumor started that Eric Trump is behind Trump's ties. Yep. Um, so well done. How many people do you think you have made self-conscious about the length of the ties they tie? Oh, I hope so many. It's an important issue. I was at an event, a black tie <laughs> event, a couple of weeks ago, and I hadn't worn a tie for quite some time. Unlike Michael, there is no dress code at where I work. Yes. And I obsessed for about 40 minutes in front of the mirror trying to make sure that my tie was exactly the right length and not a Donald Trump length. Okay, so as a guy who wears a tie every single day, here is the rule. You want it to touch the top of your belt. You don't want it to go down halfway down your belt. You want it to go below your belt. And you certainly don't, Eric, as your dad has it, below his crotch. <laughs> and I have a massive collection of ties, and there is one tie in my collection I can no longer wear. It is the bright red 
tie that Donald Trump has now made impossible to associate with anyone but him. Absolutely. And, you know, it's I will say as a as a satirist, if I may, um, I'm aware that what I am making fun of and criticizing is probably the least important thing (laughs) to make fun of and satirize. I absolutely, of course, know that. But it is no less profound that he wears his ties and his clothes in general so poorly. You would think, considering his daughter, that he would be taking her advice on that front. Sure, he'll take her advice on Middle East peace, but he won't take her advice on tie length. Right. She should sit in for him at, you know... At a suit fitting. Exactly. Instead of just at the G20. I suppose the question has an obvious answer. You're not much of a fan of Donald Trump, are you? I'm not. I'm not. And, you know, like so many people, I spent months leading up to the election and certainly months since um, making phone calls, protesting in person, yelling, doing all of those things. uh, And I continue to. Uh, it's it's really important. And, and this, for me, starting Trump's ties was really, truthfully, I started it for myself. I, I needed a different outlet, not to replace them, but instead just to supplement them. I needed something funny. I needed a different kind of cathartic experience for me. Um, and and I'm, I'm very happy that other people are able to laugh at it, too. And I think it gives us all a little bit of a a chance to breathe, to laugh at something, to make fun of him, even though there really is less and less with every passing day to make fun of. Now, with Twitter being what Twitter is, uh, what kind of blowback have you received online? That's the amazing part. It's the trolling has been. Now, I say this, right? This will be um, what changes it all. But so far has been next to nothing. I mean, really? Yeah, it's surprising, isn't it? It's I, I, I think the the pictures themselves have a sort of Rorschach effect. Um, you sort of bring to them your own point of view and feelings. I think we all do that, right, with anything that that we watch or see or hear. Um, And there are a number of people who are Trump supporters, I know, because they've said as much on Twitter, who get a kick out of the account. Now, sometimes I... I think, ah, it's not edgy enough. I'm not pushing the envelope enough. And I have since tried to, on occasion, push it a little further. Um, But it's surprising how few people have said much of anything negative. Um, You get the occasional person who says, you know, liberals are dumb. This is so stupid. Don't you have something better to do with your time? And they talk just like that, too. They do. Well, whenever I see the tweet, I say it out loud like that. It makes me it makes me feel better. I could probably count the number of those on my fingers and toes. My wife's favorite Trump's ties Photoshop uh, with, you know, 24 years experience in the media. Her favorite is the one where it's Sean Spicer at the podium and Trump's red tie is coming out like a hook from a vaudeville show. (laughs) The hook. The hook. Yeah. What is your favorite? Oh, wow. Um, that is a wonderful question. What is my favorite? I, I don't know. You know, I like it. There are a few. There are a few. There is an early one where Mr. Trump is with Mr. Trudeau, of all people. And he is doing his classic palm up offer of handshake, which is appalling. And uh, in my picture, he is offering his tie. <laughs> I remember this one. Yeah. Um, and, and the picture, and this is actually, this goes back to your other question, what makes a good picture to use? 
to date, I have done um, no altering of photographs other than the tie. And that's one of my rules as well. So I'm looking for a picture that, that when I look at it, I can see a different story happening. So in this case, of course, Justin Trudeau is looking at Donald Trump's upturned hand. And in my photo, he's kind of looking strangely at this offered tie, which I think tells a story. I think it tells its own little story. Um, so, I mean, I, I will do things with shading, of course. And when the tie is coming away from Mr. Trump's chest, I do have to reconstruct the shirt underneath, stuff like that. But to date, I have, I, I have not altered. I've not added limbs or people or expressions or anything, uh, anything of that nature. So that Trudeau one is certainly one of, one of my favorites. I like the one where Kanye standing on his tie. Oh, yeah, Kanye. I forget about Kanye. Yeah, that's... Um, How can you forget about Kanye? Well, I try to. Yeah. I think he's off Twitter. Is that true? Is this, does anyone know about this? He was for a while. Who knows? It's Kanye. Okay. Right. Eric, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. You are welcome. You are very welcome. It's funny, you know, my, my, I have kids and they help me with these once in a while. And they asked about the name thing. If you asked what my name was, what would I say? And my, my son suggested Ivanka. So it's, it's actually funny that you, you went with Eric. I think that's uh, a better choice, a more believable choice. And may the rumor mill begin. <laughs> Guests of Geeks and Beats stay at the luxurious Trump Hotel in downtown Toronto. Because when you think class, you think Trump. Can I get another amen? There's a flag wrapped around a score of men. A keg, a plastic bag on a monument. to the politics of music, or I suppose more accurately, the music of politics, you've got a tie-in to the Donald? Yeah, I do. I think that Donald Trump is the best thing that's happened to popular music in quite some time, and here's why. Uh, what? With a Democratic president in the White House, we tend not to have any kind of really angry protest music, any music with any kind of an edge. Uh. Whenever there is a Republican in the White House or a conservative at 10 Downing Street, those are the eras when we tend to have the best music. We can go all the way back to the 1950s, you know, with, with Eisenhower and then followed by uh, Nixon and then followed by uh, Reagan and followed by George H.W. and then George W., all those eras have had really intense music. We got punk rock. We got hardcore punk. We got industrial music. We got grunge. Uh, we got the indie rock revolution. And now with Donald Trump in, in the White House, you're going to see a lot of people uh, express their, their, their desires, their fears, their concerns, their anxieties through music. I couldn't disagree more. Oh, well, listen, let me go back a little bit more and let's look at the Obama presidency. All right. We're, we saw, for example, a very long period of time of where, where the cutting edge music was all bands with banjos <laughs> and yeah. it was all bands with. I can search the web for. What? What is? is did, did Siri think you were talking to her? Where is Siri? Oh, she's in my pocket. 
what, shut up, Siri. What did she think you were talking about? I don't about? know what she was talking about. All right, never mind. Anyway, uh, so we had this long period of banjo music. And now that Trump is in, in power, we're starting to see guitar music come back, something really aggressive. Oh, I thought you were going to say tuba. Do you remember that guy who followed Donald Trump around on all his golf courses with a tuba? Oh, yeah, that was funny with a tuba. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew said, is it OK I want you to follow Donald Trump around with a tuba? Yes, it is, Andrew. And by a stroke of luck, Donald Trump is in Scotland this weekend. <laughs> for the women's open golf. So we sent out a camera and a tuba player. <laughs> this is what happened. Sorry, yeah. continue. To restate things, whenever we have a Republican in the White House and a conservative at 10 Downing Street in the UK are the eras when we tend to have the most angry, the most political, and the most intense music. I sometimes wonder if I'll ever get the chance just to see three my children in a holiday jam. I like seeing pretty in your cold gray hands. Would you give a second thought? Would you ever give a damn? I doubt it. Stand on my tell you why I think you're wrong, because I did a very cursory search on the internet, so I know more than you. Okay, fine, go. <laughs> All right. If you want to pick a decade that represents the peace song. What year, what decade put out the most number of peace songs of all the decades? Peace songs. Peace and protest songs. Uh, pick a decade. Well, I would suggest it should be the 1960s, but... And you'd be wrong! But the 1960s as a protest decade didn't really start until about 1968. Well, okay, so then you make it the 70s. Is that what you're trying um, to tell me? Huh? Oh, yeah, the 70s would be wrong. <sighs> According to Wikipedia, so you know it must be true, when you look at the list of anti-war songs and protest-slash-peace songs, the 1960s had 29 songs considered of that genre. The 70s, 37. The decade that had the most number of protests slash peace songs was the 80s at 56. Okay, so what were we protesting in this in the 80s? It was all about the Cold War. Thatcher, we had Reagan, we had that fear that at any moment our lives could be obliterated. There we go. Okay, and if we go to the United States and focus on the kind of music that Ronald Reagan fostered, his his appearance in the White House, what that fostered through eight years, and that was a lot of hardcore punk. 
And if we go back through your list, I'm sure we'll find a lot of hardcore punk songs that were very critical of Reagan and his um, and, and his policies and his his people. However, my theory is, is that the protest song musicians have been usurped in their authority via social media. I will agree with you on this because a lot of people feel that protesting requires them to do something like change their Twitter icon or to post something angry on Facebook. There, I've done my bit. Slacktivism, as they call it. Yes. So in the 2000s, we had a total of 50 peace slash protest songs, anti-war songs. But now that we are 70% through the 2010s, we have less than half the number of songs of the previous generation, the same decade that Facebook became publicly available to everyone, Twitter became available as well. So we no longer need to turn to our musicians to give it to the man. This is true, and musicians haven't been, uh, of the, the most recent generation, really haven't been all that active. I mean, if we look at uh, the protest songs that have come out since Donald Trump, it's usually from older musicians, guys in their 40s and 50s. I think about uh, Prophets of Rage, for example, which is a fantastic anti-Trump sort of band. But they're, they're the older crowd. The younger crowd isn't really participating in protest songs yet. However, music is getting more aggressive. Music is getting louder. The banjos have been put away. And now we're finally getting into, getting into an era where rock and hip hop are being more critical of social and political issues. This gets backed up by an article at geeksandbeats.com by Vasem Yakonov. Yakonov. Kian. He works for he, us, he right? Work, hey, hang on. How, uh, let's ask him how he pronounces it. Vasem Yanovkian. He reports on that original collision of technology and politics with the Nixon-Kennedy TV debate, of which, of course, the millennials think of that as ancient history. But there was a time when people who would listen to that presidential election debate on the radio had concluded that Nixon had won based upon what he had to say, whereas those who had watched it on television concluded that Kennedy had won based upon his visual presence and the way he calmly carried himself versus the flop sweat rolling down Nixon's face. The Republican leadership has opposed federal aid for education, medical care for the aged, development of the Tennessee Valley, development of our natural resources. I think Mr. Nixon is an effective leader of his party. I hope he would grant me the same. The question before us is, which point of view and which party do we want to lead the United States? Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement? I have no comment. Yeah, people have... Uh have analyzed that debate for, for decades now. And anybody who holds a political debate now, that's the thing that they hold up. It's, it's how you look and how you dress and your body language and everything else that determines who wins a debate these days. The issues behind politics and technology have changed, of course, since then. Very much so. Amber Healy at GeeksAndBeats.com reports on the 11 million comments and counting in support of net neutrality that in the United States, the Federal, uh, com the Federal Communications Commission has essentially ignored. They, they've largely gone, yeah, OK, just because you think that it's a good thing doesn't mean we're going to go ahead with it and maintain net neutrality. Yeah, the, the you know, net neutrality isn't really much of a, a deal here in Canada because the government has come out in favor of it. Uh, for, for those who don't know, net neutrality means that no matter who puts what down the intertube pipes, that uh, it should be treated equally. You can't buy 
uh, preferential treatment, nor can you be punished by using a lot of uh, a lot of uh, of bandwidth. For example, Amazon.com may have a video streaming service. They're not paying AT and T to give preferential treatment to their service. Netflix does. Therefore, you get buffering problems on Amazon, but you wouldn't on Netflix. Bits have to flow like water. They can't. You can't discriminate between bits. And in Canada, this so far has been a. Uh, a mostly benign issue, although I have heard that, that Rogers does throttle some data from time to time, but I've got no real proof of that. As Canadians, we do need to be concerned because the Americans are reopening NAFTA as a trade issue, and they want to bring up a whole bunch of things that didn't exist 25 years ago when NAFTA was originally signed, specifically digital rights related, so intellectual property. But we could very well get net neutrality wrapped into that such that we are obligated to give telecommunications companies the ability to have more control over the traffic cop-like nature that um, some of the United States want to see over the internet. So you would do that with water? You would do that with electricity? Well, I, see, I don't understand No, no, that. You, would, you would do that specifically with the internet. Well, that's my point, is that the internet is basically a utility now. But that's not the way the Americans see it. It is the way the Canadians see it until we get to the end of the NAFTA negotiations and we find out what we needed to save and we threw under the bus. Yeah. Well, listen, nothing has changed the world more than the Internet in the last 20 years. There's no way I believe that it should be throttled in any way because that is going to stifle all kinds of innovation. And it's also going to open up abuses that we can't even imagine sitting here right now. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati, from the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. We still have David Kittrick as our co-producer. Uh, does he know that? Well, this is the problem. <laughs> Over at Geeks and Beats, what we do is we've got the Patreon system that we're, we're employing here for the world's worst intern program and your ability to become a co-producer. And the neat thing is, is that if you want to be a member of the world's worst intern program and what makes it the world's worst is you pay us to work on the show. One dollar. You don't do any actual work. And all you do is get credit on the show by way of us saying thank you, kind of like a real intern. Uh, but but you can't put this you can't put this on your resume. I mean, we'll vouch for you if you are a co producer absolutely we will put it on your linkedin profile saying you co-produced an episode of the big show that gets you um, that ability to do that for 25 bucks but the reason why we're going with patreon is you can say i'll donate a dollar an episode for 10 bucks worth of episodes i'll be a co-producer for one episode so my lifetime contribution is 25 dollars the thing is is i don't think david said it to a limit of 25 bucks. So every time we put out an episode, he's the co-producer, which is great for us. Not so much for him if he didn't realize that that's the way it's going. So you did send him a note, right? I did. Okay. So if you would like to support the show, we very much appreciate that. It helps. And, and all the cash goes right back into the big show. And to ensure that you don't get screwed by us, you set a lifetime limit. So if it's a dollar an episode, you can set it to 10. That means that 10 episodes, you support us. Thank you ever so much. Much like Kevin Volkman did, Frank Favari, Grant Ridge, Christopher Potter, Walter McVane, Paul Seal, Dave Duva, Laura Pugh, or Pug, P-U-G-H. I don't know how to pronounce that. That would be Pugh. Pugh, thank you. My apologies, Laura. Mike Benninger, Microsurf, and others as well. So thank you very much for helping make sure that this show continues. 
Yeah, believe it or not, uh, we do have costs. There's hosting costs. There's our producer, Vanessa, who... Uh, keeps things on the straight and narrow, and then we have this giant writing staff, um, but we don't pay them, right? No, 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 of course not. That's what makes it even worse than the world's worst intern program. How many people do we actually have on staff now? I think we have 48. No, no, it's it's actually more like 18, but that's still... That's still, I mean... That's still huge. The, 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 the Christmas party? It's going to cost us a pretty penny, hence the need for people to support us. But having said that, we may very well have a, uh, a sponsor for our big alcohol episode. Which is coming up, and I know what it's going to be. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.